The following audio is from a sermon series called Everyday Gospel. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. It looks like I've got a couple announcements here. Children's ministry meeting for all volunteers. All is underlined, so that's important, it looks like. Uh, at 1.30 at the Sacred City office, so that's 1411 Brady Street. So if you um, are currently volunteering with the children's ministry, we do need more volunteers for the kids' ministry. So if you would like to volunteer, please come to this meeting, 1.30 today. Uh, child care will be provided, so if you, need to, if you want to bring your kids, um, we'll be there. And then also, I just want you to know that we will be out of the office this week. So we've got some training that we're, we're taking place in Tacoma. So uh, Sam and I will be out of the office uh, for the... For the rest of um, this coming up week. And uh, that's about it. I want to welcome you to Sacred City Church. If this is your first time joining us this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here um, as a part of our gathering this morning. And uh, I'm going to pray and we're just going to jump right into it because we've got a lot of work to do. So let's do this. Father, we thank you for your grace given to us. We thank you for just um, how we've already heard the gospel this morning, how we've already been beckoned to worship um, the God who stands outside of all creation, the God who is different. He is the creator of all things, that we are the created. We are categorically different than, than God, that you speak out of nothing and things become. And we, we've been called to worship this great God. We've been reminded um, that you are holy and that we are not, that we are sinful and that's actually good news for us because there's no more performing now. There's no more pretending that we are sinners in need of nothing less than, than grace. And so we, we thank you for that. And we've been reminded that you give us that grace, that you are the God of all grace, that you are the God of amazing grace. And we need that amazing grace this morning. And we come to worship. We come to now to hear your word and to study this text and to hear what, what this God who speaks to us what he would have to say to us. And we uh, put ourselves under your word this morning and say, Father, you are different from us. You are above us. You are holy. You are right. You are true. You are good. You are perfect. And we are not. So we need to hear from you this morning. So I pray that you would think through my mind. You would speak through my vocal cords. That it would be all of you and very little of me. And that you would hear through our ears this morning for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. Well, here is uh, where we're going. <laughs> I actually did hear that one this week, guys. <laughs> they always ask me, the shut baby, whoo, he can put it out. <laughs> I actually did hear that one, so <clears throat> it's good stuff. So here's, here's the premise that we're going to be starting with today. The gospel is bigger than you think. All right, the gospel is bigger than you think. Casey actually used the, the term this morning that the Bible, it ha, or the gospel has more mileage. It gets more mileage than we, than we think it can. And what that means is many of us, you've heard, we've heard the gospel, we've said in a gospel presentation, or maybe we even read a little thing that somebody gave us, and we, we read the gospel, and we kind of had this little category for it. Oh, okay then I need the gospel to get into heaven, or I, I need the gospel to deal with this little guilt problem I have or the shame problem I have, or I need the gospel to kind of get me my ticket into heaven. And we kind of use the gospel or believe the gospel in this little section of our brain, right? Men, you, we, women have this, they don't really, I don't know if they have these categories in these sections, they're everything kind of everywhere, but men have these categories that we can kind of put this stuff in our brain, right? Like, so my, the gospel would never affect like my, how I look at sports, like, what? Weird. That's my church stuff. What are you talking about? My softball league or my football game or my whatever. Whoa. And, and that's a small gospel. And when we say around sacred cities, when most of our problems in life, if not all of our problems, are actually gospel problems. That the gospel is far bigger than we think. And it's not meant to have its own little category. It's meant to categorically change everything. It's meant to be so rooted in our heart that the way we look at everything, the way we look at our sports, the way we look at our money, the way we look at our kids, the way we look at our relationships are categorically and fundamentally changed because of the gospel. Okay, it changes everything. So I'm going to tell you right now, the gospel is bigger than you think. And we're going to talk about that over the next three weeks. We're doing something different. Um, we spent three weeks talking about rechurch, kind of um, uh, re-envisioning or reimagining or rediscovering what the church is supposed to be, right? And now we're spending three weeks uh, on a series that we're calling Everyday Gospel. And what it's going to be is kind of like an ongoing series where we'll come back to when we've got a few weeks here and there. We'll come back to it in the future. And we're just going to talk about how the gospel affects blank, whatever blank be. All right. And today blank happens to be marriage. Okay. How the gospel informs and empowers and changes marriage. See, when we lose sight of the work of Jesus in our marriages, the marriage usually breaks down. And, and, and I'm just gonna throw this out there for the single people in the room. Um, This is going to be for you too, because single people, they usually do two things to marriage. They either deify it and it make, and they make it God. So if I get, as soon as I'm married, my, all of my problems in life exist because I'm single. And once I get that spouse, it's smooth sailing. Like that's all I need is this guy or all I need is this girl. And then my life will be complete. Right? So there's two problems. That's number one. We deify it. We put marriage up above God and marriage above all things and think that marriage will solve all problems. (laughs) Right? And all the married people know marriage reveals your problems. It doesn't solve your problems. Right? 
And the second thing is, is to dismiss marriage. And our culture is really good at that these days. And just saying, what's the point of marriage? Marriage is not a big deal. Marriage, I don't, you know, it's just a piece of paper and we just kind of dismiss it. And, and these are two errors that we find really predominant in our culture. But the Bible speaks really differently when it comes to marriage. And we're going we're gonna to see that this morning. So today we're going to see how the gospel impacts marriage. Um, in order for us to understand marriage, we're going to have to answer at least two questions. We're going to talk about where does marriage come from? Where does it come from? And what's it for? And we're going to see from our text, you saw in Ephesians 5, we're going to see from our text that the Apostle Paul believed that marriage came from God. And it was for displaying the gospel to a watching world. And both of those answers are really different from our culture's current views on marriage that say it's just either, either a civil institution created by man and its purpose is just for personal happiness. Right? It's very different. But before we really uh, jump into our text this morning in Ephesians 5, I'm going to try to do something really difficult. I'm going to try to get you up to speed on our text because the reason we usually preach verse by verse through books of the Bible is we want you to understand the cultural context. We want you to understand the literary context of the day and age of, of the book that's been written. We really want you to understand the whole book. When we st- that's why we usually go verse by verse through books of the Bible. And again, January 1st, we'll be starting the book of 1 Corinthians, Lord willing. And uh, we'll be in that book for just about a year. So what I'm going to try to do is not just take this text out of its context and preach whatever I want to preach to you. I'm going to try to catch you up to speed on the sweep and the scope of the book of Ephesians uh, really quick. And just to let you know, about a year and a half ago, we went verse by verse all the way through the book of Ephesians. And uh, I preached six or seven sermons just on the topic of marriage. So uh, I've been told those have been placed on our website this week. So if you... If this whets your appetite for something and you want to go back, I encourage you. Most people said it's the best stuff I've preached, uh, probably because I stole some, most of it from Tim Keller. <laughs> so you can go back and you can, and you can find that on our website under, under Ephesians. So let's, uh, let's jump into this. The book of Ephesians is, is one of my favorite books of all the books of the Bible. It was written by the Apostle Paul, and he was writing it to several different missional communities spread all across Asia Minor which is modern day Turkey. Okay. And Ephesians, we're going to, we're going to look at Ephesians one really quick. I know we're on, we're going to go to Ephesians five, but I want you to open up your Bibles to Ephesians one, because I want you to kind of get blown away by how Paul starts the book. Okay. Ephesians chapter one. When you're there, say there. Okay. Now, before we read this, what, what I want, I want to give you some context right here. Listen to this. This section, we're going to read verses 3 through 10 together. And what I want you to know is that this is, in the Greek, this is one sentence. Okay? Verses 3 through 10 is one sentence. This is a 202 word bomb. Okay? This is Paul with a galactic view of the gospel. Paul's gospel is, my kid's favorite word, ginormous. Okay? Paul's gospel is ginormous, and he sees it. What is it? Just, is the lighting outside that keeps changing? I'm getting weirded out by this. Like, I'm like, what is going on? All right. Paul's gospel is huge, and when he speaks of the gospel, he doesn't use commas. He doesn't use. He doesn't break up. His, he's got one run-on run sentence. He just 
Theologians call this a doxology or a glory word. It's just a word bomb, a word explosion, a worship just coming out of everything. Okay, so I'm going to try to read it like that. And here's the deal. We Americans, we want to categorize everything and break it up. And what did that mean? And what that, and we can't do that with this. We can, if you break it down and you want to, but I preached like 10 weeks probably on this one little passage. So today we're just going to get the sweep. So let's go. Verse three, Paul and his huge gospel. Here we go. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with what? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Thank God we don't lack anything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he did what? Chose us in him, in Christ. When? Before the foundation of the world, praise God. That we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. Look at this. In love, he, Jesus, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. So, according to God's will. To the praise of what? His glorious grace. Not just his grace, but his glorious grace. With which he is what? Blessed us. Dang! In the beloved We are loved and beloved by God in him, in Jesus. We have what? Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what? The riches of his grace, which he sprinkled. No, no, no. Lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Mystery. According to what? His purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. That's all things in Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth. This is a 202 word bomb. One long sentence. God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing has chose us before the foundations of the world to make us holy and blameless that in love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ, that we are blessed in the beloved, that we are redeemed through his blood, that we are forgiven all of our sins, that we have been lavished. His grace has been, has been lavished upon us. And why did he do all of this stuff? What was the purpose of it all? Verse 10 tells us that God has a plan that's in full effect right now. That right now, as we speak and as we sit and as we listen, God is renewing and uniting all things in Jesus. Everything is being renewed right now. He is in the process of bringing all things back into line with the way he created them. That Jesus, the firstborn of the new creation... And one day, just like Jesus, the firstborn of the new creation, he was resurrected with this new body. God is in the process of renewing and redeeming and recreating and resurrecting all things. That one day God will totally renew this planet. I want you to hear that. God will totally renew this planet. He's not just going to throw it away and create a new one. He's going to renew and recreate this one. Removing all of the traces of sin. 
right? And here's, the, here's what Paul's saying in this text. God is also in process of doing that with us. We are included in new creation. We are included in this renewal of all things. That God has redeemed us and forgiven us and adopted us and chose us and predestined us. And did all of this stuff for the purpose of renewing us. Renewing all things for the glory of God. To the praise of His glorious grace. God has chosen, specifically here He says, His church to be renewed after His own image. He has predestined us to look like Him. And this, is the, this is where we're going. He's predestined us to look like Jesus in the new creation, in the new heavens, in the new earth. Now, what, what does that mean? I hope we can get this this morning. That means the future you. Okay? This is, might get Star Trekky up in this mug, but I can't help it. That means the future you looks better than the current you. Okay? Oh my gosh, I'm trying not to use big words. Okay. Because what, what I want to say is the eschaton, all right, this, this end of all things that God is creating and God is renewing us for, this purpose of God that's coming, that we're moving like, a, like we're on a treadmill, no, not a treadmill, a conveyor belt, we're moving towards this spot. There is a new created you, if you are in Christ, there's a new creation you that's there. And you look a whole lot more like Jesus than you do right now. Okay, so there is a future, I like this, there is a future you that looks better than the current you out there somewhere in Christ. That future you is free from sin, is free from pain, is free to love unconditionally. That future you doesn't have these like needs to be exalted and be praised and needs the affirmation of all these different people. That future you is a satisfied you. That future you is a happy you. That future you is a glorified you. That you'll be free to love with no inordinate desires. You know, there's some things that you just frustrate. Why do I love that so much? Why do I love verbally just cutting people's legs out from under them? Why do I love gossiping? Why do I love... Those things will be gone. And if you could see right now, if we could see into God's future, we would be shocked by our own holiness. We would be... And here we go, married folk. We would be blown away at the splendor of our spouse. We would be blown away by their glory. We would be blown away by their holiness. And if you, in this room, if you are a Christian, that right now you are actually caught up in this process of renewal and redemption. That you are on God's conveyor belt of change. He is moving you closer and closer and closer into this new creation self. And while all of this is going on, most of us are completely unaware, right? We're more concerned about the clothes getting from the floor into the clothes hamper. Like, honey, really, why? Here, 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 here. Because when I took it off and flipped it, it didn't land there. That's why. Right? But thankfully, what Scripture does is the Bible gives us new eyes to see. 
The Bible lets us see behind the curtain, as it were. The Bible gets, like, gives us a picture in the future. And if we get this picture in the future, if we can get that right, and we can find our, the end of all things, then we can kind of live our life backwards and, and like reverse engineer the way we should live now. If we can see that future us and that future spouse in the new heavens and the new earth. And as Christians, see, this is kind of how we glorify God. This is our purpose in life. To know God, to understand His grace, to be a part of His church that's on a mission to renew creation, and to be molded and shaped more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. That's our goal. That's our win. That's what we're called to do. So, Paul has basically... That's what Paul does in Ephesians 1. He does it through the first four chapters. Actually, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. All Paul does is just drop gospel bombs. He, t- he gives what we talked a little bit last week about imperatives and indicatives. Imperatives are things that we're supposed to do. Indicatives are things that God's done. So many people think the Bible is all imperative. What we should do, just a list of checks and of do's and don'ts. It's so cool. In the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul gives us one imperative. Three chapters, and he only gives us one imperative. Everything else is indicatives. And you know what the one imperative is? Remember. The only imperative in the first three chapters is remember what God has done in the gospel. Everything else is, he has done this, he has done that, he has blessed us, he has lavished. It's all about what he's done. Okay, But then what happens in the last three chapters is Paul is basically saying, that's the gospel. It's so big, you can't even get your mind around it. But if you do, and as you do begin to glimpse it and grasp it and bring it into your heart and begin to believe it, here's how your life's going to change. Here's how it's going to look. Here's the fruit that's going to be produced by the belief in what God's already done. Faith will produce works. Okay? That's what he does. So, we need to know that. That's what he's kind of warmed up into. And then in verse, or in chapter 5, before he gets to the topic of marriage, this is what he says. The ver, uh, ch- verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, therefore, okay, that's a key term, because of everything he's done before. Therefore, be imitators of God. Wow. As beloved children. And walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Right here, this is pretty much Paul saying, walk in love, be filled with the spirit. This is pretty much before we get to marriage. This is pretty much Paul's don't try this at home speech. Paul is saying the biblical model of marriage cannot happen without the fullness of the spirit. What he's about to tell us about marriage, that it can't be done by unbelievers. The, the, the way God has built marriage. It's un, you cannot accomplish this without the work of the Spirit and without the gospel at, at work in a person's heart. Can't be done. And we're gonna, I'm going to get there, so I'll prove it to you in a minute. But what Paul's about to tell us is that marriage plays a huge part in God's plan and purpose to renew all things for the glory of God. But what he's about to say about marriage is for Christians. It's not for the world. It's not for unbelievers. This is for Christians. See, God uses many things to make us into the image and likeness of Jesus. But one of his strongest tools is marriage. Marriage is a major vehicle 
for the gospel's remaking of your heart from the inside out and your life from the ground up. Marriage is one of the key contexts where God really goes to work on your idolatry. He really goes to work on your sins. He really goes to work on your heart. So we're going to talk a little bit about marriage. I told you the first thing we got to say is where does it come from and what's it for? Okay, we're going to, so let's talk about where does it come from? What's the definition of marriage? Now we're going to be Ephesians 5, chapter 25, or Ephesians 5. Verses, uh, we're going to go 25 through 33. Let's start with verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, the, the King James, if you grew up in the church, you probably know this from the King James Version. King James says to leave and cleave. <laughs> leave and cleave. All right, the ESV says to hold fast. Now, Paul is quoting Genesis 2, chapter 2. 24, and the Hebrew word there literally means to be glued to. So what does it mean to cleave? What does it mean to hold fast? It means to be glued to another person. So let's just start right there talking about the definition of marriage. Marriage is an institution that's been created by God. Listen, to take two opposites. A male and a female, two sexually different people, and unite them as one to resemble Jesus and his church. Okay? Diversity. There is unit, and then diverse, and then unity. So there's unity in diversity. It's not two, taking two of the same type of people and calling them one. It's taking a positive and a negative. It's taking a male and a female, creating them. And as they come together, they're glued together, the Hebrew would say, in a covenant. And that's marriage. So what, what, is, what is that? What is a covenant? Now, we, we spent a lot of time talking about covenant as we were going through Genesis. But let me just cut to the chase here really quick. Marriage is a covenant. What does that mean? It means it's binding. It means it's, it's a public. It's a legal contract. It's binding. It's public. It's legal. Now, you know, you might not like that, right? We don't see that too often on Hallmark cards. Would you like, uh, you get down on one knee. I would like to have a binding public legal contract with you. And she says, oh, I do, right? It sounds legal, sounds boring, sounds dry. I could totally see why we would say that, right? And I, I, actually, I think you might be right, but I, I want to get underneath that statement one second, right? Covenants, they are legal. They take discipline. They take authority. They take commitment. It's really just tough and rough and harsh words, not ooey-gooey language. Does that sound like love to you? Legal. Authority, discipline, commitment. Are those love words? And now listen, most of us would say, no, those aren't love words. And that is weird. And I don't want, I don't want that included in my ceremony by any means. I don't want to think about marriage in those terms. But what I want, to see, I want you to see is like when we think that way, when we believe that way, all we're doing is showing the culture of our times. We're showing our postmodern tendencies. See, pre-modern people, they believed the home 
I'm going to use it in, I'm going to, let me just use it like this. The home used to be the American dream. White picket fence, little house, mom and dad, a couple kids running around. That was the American dream. Everything kind of centered around the home. What the home, what's the basis of the home? You've got a provider. You've got commitment. You, you, you're, you're, you're expecting to come home and mom and dad are going to be there every day. And they're not, you know, killing each other, at least not in, op- in the living room. They do that when they go to their bedroom and close the door, right? That's when they get after it. Kids don't know about it. But the home was the center. And listen, when the home is the center, when the home used to be the center, even of our American society, when the home used to be the center, words like commitment, Words like uh, covenant and legal and binding and, and discipline, those were love words. You know, the husband bringing home a paycheck and working long hours and providing for the kids and fixing stuff up around the house, a woman felt loved by that, right? And a woman oftentimes taking care of the kids and cleaning that and doing these kind of domestic, a man felt loved by that, right? There wasn't all this... You know, just go think, just think back to your grandparents, right? There wasn't like, we haven't had a date night. I never heard the word date night from my grandma and grandpa. Date night, we're out there working in the field, right? What is date night? My grandma and grandpa used to, you know, shell peas on the front. That's date night. What do you mean spending $50 for a steak dinner, right? And that's when the home was a center, okay? Now that's still cultural, culturally created. But what most sociologists are telling us today is the home has been replaced by the road. And when we used to, we valued commitment and we valued words like longevity and discipline. We used to value those words. Those were love words to our grandparents' generation and older. Now we value spontaneity. Now we value freedom. Now we value, we value Facebook friends and the ability to keep my options open. And I don't want to really get in a covenant with anybody because what if I find something they do, I don't like about them? Like his earlobes or the way he, you know, eats his steak, right? Like people are like legitimately breaking up with people for stuff like this. Oh, he wore white socks. Did you see that? I can never be with a guy like that. Right? He listens to Coldplay. Oh, I can't stand. People are like literally. And, and so now spontaneity and, and, and what we view as freedom. And listen, and, and here, here's the other one. An emotion. Like the way I feel in the moment. That's the center of our existence. Right? We're afraid to make a commitment because we know people change. And what if this person changes? And we so underneath, when we think, oh, legal, binding, contract, you know, discipline, those are dismissed. That's not love language. No, no, it is love language. It's just different from your current, the current cultural waters that we swim in. It's really common to hear people say this today. I hear it all the time. Oh, marriage is just a piece of paper. I don't need a piece of paper. I, I don't need a piece of paper to love you. Now, let me get underneath that. What that statement is saying is, my love isn't based on a covenant. My love is based in my feelings. And right now, I feel like I love you. You're doing something for me right now. I like you right now. And right now, 
because I feel this way, I feel like I should receive, I can receive some love from you. So I don't need a piece of paper telling me that, that I can actually love you. My feelings tell me that I love you and I want to receive love from you. Right? So now this is, this is, this is a complete redefining of love as it comes from us, from the Bible. The Bible has a complete different definition of love. It's not how we feel in the moment. The Bible measures love by how much a person is willing to give up for another person. So when you hear this language of, I don't need a piece of paper to love you, and who moves the, the state can't say if we're married or not, and it's just a piece of paper, what that person's really saying is, my love's not based on a covenant, it's not legal binding, my love is based on my current feelings. It's funny, you can see this, I do a lot of weddings, a lot of young people, right, we just did one last night, and I, when I do weddings, for the most part, I don't let people write their own vows, okay, and this is why. Back in the day, well, let me start with the current day. When people write their own vows, they typically go something like this. I love you. I'm so happy with you. You are so beautiful. I love the way you cook. I literally have people do this kind of stuff. You are the best thing that's ever happened to me, and I want to share my life with you. Like, it's all this epic language. Their life has been made complete now, right? You walked in the room and just... I smelled, you know, glory as you walked in and the light shined on your face and you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I got ooey gooey's all over and now I can't help it, but we have to get married and, you know, live like this forever. All of when people write their own vows, not always, but almost always, they're always based in their current feelings. They're always based in this, you know, ooey gooey kind of, you know, notebook feeling of, Like the way you feel at the end of that movie, you know, like, oh, that's what love is. Right? And Christian vows. Now, this this is very distinct. Christian vows, like historically, Christian vows don't say anything about feelings. Feelings are assumed. They say, I promise to be loving. I promise to be tender. I promise to be kind. I promise to be faithful. I promise to be cherishing no matter how I feel. Something about that gets me in my gut. Where these, you know, our postmodern tendencies, oh, I feel like, ah, right? And and Christian theology and our Christian vows say, no matter how I feel, I will be there in the end. Remember those, remember those, that little thing you used to sneak into the vows for better or worse, for richer or poorer. We don't have those anymore because you know, she's thinking you lose your job. I'm out of here. <laughs> right. And he's thinking if I have to wipe behinds, uh-uh, I'm out too. And we see it. We see it in our culture. Why? Because love has been, love has been reduced into a feeling. See, biblical love is shown in how much I am willing to sacrifice for another person. How much am I willing to deny my choices for another? So the first thing that we need to see about love is that its basis, its foundational, its foundation is covenantal. It's covenantal. It's it's a commitment. It takes discipline. 
It takes a reduction of freedom of saying, I don't choose anyone else. I choose this one. And no matter what life brings to me, I will be there in the end. I will be loving. I will be committed. I will be committed to you. Now, it's a covenant. Maybe that's not sexy to you. It's biblical. It's what real love is. Now, the second thing we need to see here. So first off, what's the purpose of it? What, what God created it. It's covenantal. Second thing we need to see about marriage is that it's transformational. First, it's covenantal. Second, it's transformational. Marriage is the place where two people who are radically different from each other, they love each other with a covenant love, an exclusive love, and through that love, they are both made into a radically different, two radically different people. They're changed. I joke around sometimes and I say that my wife has been married to six different guys. They just all have my name. Right? I am different from when I first got married almost 10 years ago. Right? I'm a different man today. They become, see, in marriage and through marriage, we are becoming that future version of ourselves. That future version of you that's out there that looks more like Jesus than the current version does. Marriage is a vehicle that takes us there. It's transformational. God uses marriage to make us look more and more and more like Jesus. We become more sanctified, right? More and more like Jesus. The future reality... The future reality of new creation works itself backwards more and more into our day-to-day and our daily lives. So this future reality through marriage and through the gospel and through faith works itself backwards and kind of changes us as we're moving forward. So for many of us, over 90% of people actually will be married. For many of us, Marriage is the vehicle that God will use to take us to our new creation selves. I want you to see what this looks like. How does this work in real life, Justin? Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Stop. Now, Paul's brilliant. He doesn't stop there. Husband, love your wives. Why? Because every husband in this room goes, (laughs) I'm killing this one. I love her. Like we have this, whatever that means in our head, that's the interpretation we're given. I love her. Bring home a paycheck. I wash the dishes occasionally. You know, I don't yell at her too often when I'm sitting, when she gets in front of the TV and I'm watching football. All right. I take the kids out. Like we got the, whatever, whatever that definition of love is. But Paul doesn't do that to us. Paul doesn't say, just love your wives. And we're all like, nailing it. What's he do? Let's keep reading. Husbands, love your wives. Well, what's that look like? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Who did Jesus give himself up for? The church. The elect, the redeemed. He gave himself up for her that he might what? That he might sanctify her. So let's just stop right here. Marriage is self-sacrificial. 
Men, marriage, because it's, tra- because it's covenantal and it's transformational, it's self-sacrificial. What's he say? Love your, lo- your wives like Christ loved the church. Self-sacrificially. This isn't two people getting together and saying, I feel really gooey towards you. Paul is saying, men, there will be a lot of times in your marriage where loving your wife feels a whole lot like dying. (laughs) And it is. It is. It is the current you. It's the current you dying. But the beauty of the gospel is that resurrection comes after death. See, that death to your desires and death to yourself is the starting point. Is the, is the beginning of the future you being brought to life in the here and now. I know this is getting whatever you want to call this. I don't know. Star Trek-y, future-y, whatever it is. But it's Biblical. This death is the current you dying so the future you can be brought to life in the here and now. This is what Jesus meant when he said things like we have to lose our life in order to find it. I have to lose my coin in order to find it. I have to lose my keys in order to find it. Uh-huh. That's what he means. I have to lose my life in order to find it. I lay it down what John the baptizer said. He said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. This death to self, this self-sacrificial love. See, as we're dying to ourself, men, we have to have this one eye locked on the future version of us that God's creating. He's creating a you that's less self-centered He's creating a you that's more like Jesus. Jesus was phenomenal. He's the most powerful human being on the the planet, right? We could argue that, right? He's God in the flesh. Let's argue that. And Jesus walks into a room. And what does the most important man in all the world do when he walks into the room? See, when Michael Jordan walks into a room, he barks orders, he commands, and he expects to have his coffee at the perfect temperature delivered to his hand, right? He doesn't want to have to touch doorknobs. He wants the doorknobs open for him, right? But when the most influential and important and powerful man in all the world, when he enters a room, he puts on an apron and he washes feet. Why? Because he was free, he didn't need the accolades of people. Men, that pride in us, that, that hates to be helped, and that, 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 that wants to be seen as powerful and strong, Jesus didn't have that. He was free of that. Can you imagine a life that you're free of that? You're really li- free to live humble. That's the future you. And as we die to ourself, we keep that eye on this future view, this, this future you, this image that looks like Jesus that he's making us into. But I want to, add something to that. This self-sacrificial love also has one eye locked onto your wife's new creation self as well. 
Paul says that your self-sacrificial love will, in verse 26, sanctify your wife like Christ is sanctifying the church. That your love, man, listen to me, your love, your self-sacrificial love will help your wife become the future version of herself that is promised in the new heavens and the new earth. God puts you with her to help the spirit sanctifies, but he uses marriage and he uses your relationship and he uses your self-sacrificial love to get her where she's going. And Paul has this vision in mind that Jesus one day is going to present the church to God. And he's going to present her holy and sanctified and washed without spot or wrinkle, without blemish. That Jesus is doing this perfect work of sanctification in all of our life. And I want, listen, when he goes in and says, this is like Christ in the church. This is the mega mysterion. This is the mystery. The mega mystery of the gospel. He goes in and says on, in, in 30 and 31, listen, men, one day we will present our wife. Before the great white throne of God. We will present our wife. Will she look better than when God gave her to you? Is she more holy? More sanctified? More like Christ? Than when he gave her to you at that altar? That's what's happening right now. That's what God's doing through marriage. Now listen. I find this poignant. I find this powerful. I have this, this image in my head that there's this future version of me and there's this future version of my wife out there and that God is through his spirit and through the power of the gospel, he's using marriage to get us there. I want you to listen to this quote. Uh, if, you've, if you've heard of Joni Erickson Tata, uh, she was a, a young girl and um, I think she was four or five. Ah, I can't remember how old she was, but she, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and she misjudged the water and she broke her neck. And she's been a quadriplegic ever since. And uh, she went through a lot of doubt and a lot of unbelief and a lot of fear. And, and then God's redeemed that and God's brought her through it. And listen, listen to what she says about the new creation. Somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I shall become. The paralysis makes what I am to become all the more grand when you contrast atrophied, useless legs against splendorous, resurrected legs. I'm convinced that if there are mirrors in heaven, and why not, the image I'll see will be unmistakably Joni, although a much better, brighter Joni. Like this is that future version, this new created that our weaknesses are even used somehow to make our new created selves better. Listen how C.S. Lewis, and this is where two Christians are headed together. Listen to what, stop right here, let me just say that. Why does, why does the Father, why does God say not to marry unbelievers? A Christian should not marry an unbeliever. They're headed in different directions. They're, they're headed in completely opposite directions. The Christian is being made into this image. The unbeliever is trying to get further and further and further away from that image. Okay, that's just a little side note. There you go. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. God will make the feeblest and the filthy of us into a god or goddess. Little G's. Dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. 
A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. Men, when you wake up in the morning, you wake up next to a future goddess. Little G. You should use that every now and then. Just telling you. That would do, you would earn some points with that one. Ladies, you welcome, you, you wake up next to a little G. In the new creation, when God fixes us, when God redeems us, when God renews us, dazzling creature. Look at verse 27. So that he might, so that he might, or the father, God might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So we're headed now, single people. Hopefully this can rework. This is going to rework some of your uh, concept of marriage. All right. And I'm going to use Michelangelo uh, as, as an illustration. Okay. Um, Michelangelo took him a long time. I can't remember how long it took him. It took him a long time to find um, when he was making a statue of David. Okay. He's famously said this. All I did, all I did was chisel away everything that wasn't David. His, his wonderful statue, right? All I did was chisel away everything that wasn't David. Now, this, this, this is an important point. Most people, when they're trying to choose a spouse, they're, they're looking for statues. They're looking for David. They're looking for the perfect image. His hair is just right, and his taste in music is just right, and his food is just right. The, the food he likes to eat is his man. We're looking for the outward image. And what Michelangelo said, when he was choosing, when he was going to create David, what he did was he looked for the perfect chunk of marble. See, he didn't search for a statue. He, stir, he searched for a perfect chunk of stone. And there's a big difference there. See, Michelangelo could, could say, see, I see in a big chunk of stone, guess what? There's weaknesses. In a big chunk of stone, there's flaws. In a big chunk of stone, there's, I mean, there's just a bunch of rough edges. There's a bunch of ugly stuff. And that's kind of like when you, in the gospel, and as Christians looking for a spouse, we're looking for large chunks of marble, not perfect statues. Because in the gospel, we say, I can see your flaws, and I can see your weaknesses, and I can see your sins, but I can also see, like Michelangelo, I can see the person inside that chunk of stone that God is shaping you into. I can see where you're headed. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen says, as iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. As iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. That's what marriage is about. Think of that chisel as it hits the stone. Iron sharpens iron. (laughs) In a good marriage, sparks fly. Right? In a good marriage, there is confrontation. See, when Michelangelo says, all I did was chisel away everything that wasn't David. I looked at that chunk of stone and I went to work and just tried to get everything out of it that wasn't David. That's all I did. See, that's what a real friend or a real lover does. They see the future you. 
that God is creating, and listen right here, they lovingly go after the rest with a chisel. Your spouse, the person you're looking for, they see your flaws, they see your weaknesses, but they also see through that. They see into this future version of you and they go after everything else that doesn't line up with that. Marriage is... This is a big word. I'm going to use it anyways and I'll explain it. Marriage, and I just created it kind of. Marriage is transformational because it is eschatologically confrontational. What does that mean? It means... I see the future version of you that God is making. I see this picture that you are being made into the image of Jesus. I can see what you can be, right? And now I'm going to confront everything that's not lining up with that in a loving way, in a gracious way. I'm going to go after that selfishness. I'm going to go after that fear. I'm going to go after that individualism that wants to hide and wants to keep all your problems. I'm going to go after that in the gospel. A good marriage is confrontational. God has given your spouse, and we need, to leave, we need to give our spouse permission for this. God has given your spouse the ability to see the future new creation you. And your spouse confronts in a loving way those pieces of your character that are still your old self. See, that's what a true friend, that's what a true lover is. Someone who is committed to God's purposes being accomplished in your life. They're committed to that future version of you. That means if you love your spouse, and this, this, I need to specifically speak to newly married and people who've been married a long time. If you love your spouse, you will confront them. This is where we really see our self-righteousness rise to the surface. Because you know, here's what happens in marriages that have been married a long time. They just... They pull up the white flag, right? They call a truce. You don't confront me on this, and I won't confront you on that. And then we just learn to live with each other's sins. We just learn to live with each other's character flaws. And guess what? The same thing that you're struggling with at home, that his employees hate him for it, the same thing. Right? Those same things that bug you, bug everybody else that he knows. And God gave marriage to take this fool and train him into the image of Jesus. So, wife, you've got to go after those things. It's like this. This is why marriage has got to be covenantal. His issues, his mama told him a long time ago all about him. Okay? And then his friends tried to, tried to tell him about him. But guess what? None of those relationships are covenantal. <laughs> Mom, whatever. I'm going to college. Deuces. Right? Friends, hang around. But when, when my issues get bugging, they just leave me for a little while. They hang, you know, they just dismiss it. There's no covenantal love there. They're just, they're kind of in and out of my life. My wife or my, my mom tried to change me. She couldn't do it. My friend's been trying to change me. Guess what? So God, what God does, he puts you in a covenantal love. We're going to be in each other's business every single day. And it's God's, it's like this. All the time on, on 74, every year, Every summer, there's two, two seasons in the Quad Cities, if you didn't know it. There's winter and road construction. That's all we've got. So every year during road construction season, there's people out there on the 74 bridge. And what are they doing? Just spraying stuff, looking around. What they're doing is they're looking for hairline cracks. They're looking for hairline fractures. They're looking for loose bolts. They're looking for little bitty things that could cause really big problems. Right? Before this, you know, semi drives, drives across it and the whole thing collapses. 
Your whole life, your mom's been revealing those cracks and your friends have been revealing those cracks and you just ignored them, ignored them, ignored them. Marriage is the place where you can't get away and it's covenantal. You're locked into it for a lifetime and you're meant to deal with the cracks. You're meant to fix the bridge. Or, if it's just based on your feelings, when they reveal your cracks, you do with your, you did with your mom, see you mom. Do what you did with your college buddies, see you guys. You do with you did with your wife and you say, see ya, I'll get a different one. One about 10 years younger, who's a lot dumber than you are. And she won't see this until like three or four years down the road. And then I'll have the same thing. Promise you happens every single day. Every single day. Marriage is meant to be confrontational. Don't, don't put up the white flag. Don't call a truce. Lovingly confront your spouse. Listen, I know, oh, I tried that. It didn't work. It doesn't cut it. If we see this as a gospel issue, you can't just give up on it. You can't just quit. We don't confront because it's guaranteed to change them. We confront because that's the loving thing to do. And God tells us to do it. Men, if you love your wife, confront her sin in love. Is she afraid of community? Confront it. Lead her. Is she fearful of being on mission? Lead her. Confront it. Speak the truth to her in love. Is she too worried about the opinions of other people? Confront it lovingly in the gospel. Okay, no, I can hear people already. Like, what does that look like? He gives us a perfect picture here. Look at verse 26. That he might sanctify her. That's what it's talking about. Having what? Cleansed her. By the washing of water with the word. Men, it's important that you know scripture. You're the priest, the prophet, the king of your home. How do you confront lovingly? You do it with scripture. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. I think we're pretty good at that. Men, he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh. But what? Nourishes it and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. Men, what does it look like to lovingly confront your wife? And we can flip this around. Women, the same thing. It's a cleansing. It's a nourishing. It's a cherishing. I'm confront. That's what confrontation in the gospel does. It's a nourishing. It's a cleansing. It's a cherishing. And listen, this is why it takes a covenantal relationship to make it work. You can't run from this. You've been men and women. Every other person that tried to change you in your life, you ran from. And you just said, eh, they're, it's, they're the issue. They're the issue. They're the issue. It's that, that person's problem. It's not me. No, let me tell you. It's your problem. And everybody sees it. And God put you with that spouse to lovingly confront you and remind you of the gospel. So finally, you'll grow out of it. Finally, you'll become this new creation self that's already out there. Don't run from it. Don't run from it. It's like the, the potter is molding you and you're trying everything you can to jump off his wheel. Stay put. See, marriage is standing before the state the government, God, the church, your friends and family, and you're making a lifelong commitment to be loving, to be 
cherishing, to be tender, to be tough, to be faithful to them until death do you part. There is no covenant in the backseat of a car. There is no covenant in cohabitation. There is no covenant with a prenup. And what I want you to see this morning is that every other definition of love, other than covenantal, every other definition of love is self-centered. It's based on feelings or at the most maybe a contract. But that's not how Christ loves us. See, this is what Paul says here in verse 32, that this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that marriage is talking about is pointing to Jesus and the church's relationship. This marriage is profound. This mystery is profound. It's in the Greek, it's a mega mysterion. It's a mega mystery. If you've been married for very long, you believe it is a mega mystery. And he's saying it's not based on feelings. It's based in the one way covenantal love of Jesus Christ. For us. I want you to think about this. Jesus, when he was in the garden, before his torture and execution, he wasn't gooey. Jesus wasn't in the garden just goo-goo-eyed over the church, over you. Jesus wasn't in the garden with feelings just bubbling up. He wasn't feeling rapturous and oh, like the husband as he waits for the bride. He's standing down. I love it. I get to stand right here. I I stood right next to Ben yesterday as Mackenzie came in. And my favorite thing to do, I look at her and then I look at him. And then I smile because he's just weeping and he's emotional. He's a mess. Right? And that is not a picture of Jesus in the garden. Jesus is not standing there in the garden, seeing the bride that's presented before him and just, she's mine. What's Jesus doing in the garden? Right? He's weeping. Jesus is motivated by his relationship and his commitment to the father by a covenant. See, Jesus' love was a covenantal love. He was sweating drops of blood. Have you gotten to that point in your marriage yet? Seriously. You know that if you've been married, you know you've got to that point pretty close. Right? Slamming doors, locking yourself in the bathroom, going for a long drive through three different states, right? Marriage is meant to bring you to that point. Covenant love. Covenant love brought Jesus to that point when he's looking at his bride. And what was, what kind, what was bride? If you read through, I dare you to read through the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, don't read this one to the kids at bedtime. All right. There's a whole, looking around. Oh, maybe I shouldn't say it. There's a whole lot of W-H-O-R-E language. In the book of Ezekiel. And guess who he's talking about? Us. The bride of Christ. That we give ourselves to many different lovers. And guess what? When Jesus is sitting in the garden. And he's sweating drops of blood. 
If he's looking down the aisle, that's who he sees. But what does he do? See, it's a covenantal love. It's not a feeling. It's not emotion. It's a covenantal love. So he stays put. He was committed to the Father's will. He was committed to our redemption. He knew he was going to take a mm, and turn it into the bride of Jesus. Take a mm, man. I just want uh, take a whore. He knew he was marrying a whore, but in the end, he was presenting a bride spotless, without wrinkle. He knew that his love, his redemptive love, his covenantal love, was a transforming type of love. And what did he do? He's sitting there, he sees that, and he still acts loving. Love does. He still went to the cross. He didn't feel like it. I get so fed up with people who think that Jesus looked down and saw this really beautiful, just adorned church and just had to have her. So, oh, I'll just give my life for her. She's so beautiful and she'll complete me. Jesus looks down and he sees a whore and he's still willing to die for her. Men, what was your excuse again for not loving your wife? He was motivated by covenantal love. He was committed to our redemption. He was committed to our personal change, our sanctification, our future self, if you will. And I'm going to tell you, the only way that we're going to be motivated for a lifelong, self-sacrificial, covenantal love towards our spouse is for us to have our eyes locked on that Jesus. Locked on the real God-man and his self-sacrificial covenantal love for us. That when we were pursuing our own ends, when we were selfish and self-centered, and I'm just going to use biblical language, and we were, we were whoring ourselves out to all different types of gods. He was suffering for us. He was laying his life down for us. And this sweep of the biblical narrative shows us that type of love is transformational. When you get a love like that, it changes who you are. It changes us when we experience us, experience it. It beautifies us. It cleanses us. It nourishes us. It empowers us to love others with a love like that. See, this is why I said it earlier. That's why there's like a, Paul almost gives his like warning speech beforehand. Don't try this at home. You can't love like this without being loved like this. God requires you to love like this. But he equips you and he provides for you and he loves you like this. This is the gospel. We are wayward lovers and Christ comes after us and through his love for us, transforms us into his own image. And this is how we love our spouse. Single people, look for a good block of marble. Look for somebody who loves Jesus. Jesus. 
Look for someone with some character. Look for someone who can keep a job. Look for someone who's not playing video games for nine hours a day in his mama's basement wearing Star Trek pajamas. That's just start there. Start there. Right? And then love them with a covenantal love and watch what Jesus does. Let me pray. Father, as we come to the table this morning, I pray for the marriages of the people in this room today. I pray that you would restore them, that you would recreate them, that you would revive them, that you would remake them, that you would renew them, that you would recommit them into your definition of marriage. And I pray for the singles in the room. I pray that you would allow them to have their views of marriage radically reworked by your spirit in the gospel. That this is too good to be true. We are an unworthy bride. We are filthy. We are wayward. We are rebellious. We are immoral. But you suffered and you died for us. And you are in process through your one way covenantal love. You are in process loving us into our new created selves. What glorious good news. What a absolutely beautiful and epic story that we're caught up into. Father, we say your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Make us into that that person. Enable us to be self-sacrificial with each other. Enable us to love like that because we are loved like that. As we come and we break the body, let us remember you were broken for your bride. That your blood purchased your bride. That you are committed to us. To the point of death, to the point of resurrection, to to the point of the day in and day out, constant love that it takes to forgive us and to make us into this image. You are committed to it. You're committed to our sanctification. We thank you for it. Let us eat with joyful hearts this morning. Let us repent of our, of our selfishness towards our spouse. Let us repent towards our sinful definitions of marriage. And let us place our faith solely in you. In your son's great name, we say, amen.